Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. All right, Ben, today's show is organizational culture, what it is, and how to change it. That's right. That's right. But first, before we dig into that awesome topic, I just think it'd be fun to take a a short moment and do a little housekeeping just to talk to our listeners. And first of all, I just want to say thanks. Like It has been awesome seeing so many people download the Indigo podcast. As of this recording, we're approaching 1,000 downloads, which is just phenomenal. Uh, So thank you to everyone out there for your support, for downloading the podcast, from all the feedback we've gotten. It seems like people are really finding a lot of value in this podcast. So uh, please visit us, if you haven't already, at indigotogether.com and sign up for our email list. That way you can know the moment that we have something new in addition to potentially the podcast and so forth. Yeah, and and let your friends know that we exist. If you appreciate the content that is here, uh, please share it. And, you know, through Indigo Together and this podcast, we really want to build a community around what we're doing, which means we need to hear from you about relevant topics uh, in your workplace and in your world writ large, and also ways that we can improve uh, the offerings that we're bringing to you. That's right. Absolutely. Okay. So, Ben, today in our podcast, we are going to define organizational culture. You know, what is it? why organizational culture matters, and, and how it changes. Wow, that's, that's a lot. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how this goes. I mean, you could have an entire uh, semester-long course in maybe just one of those, but I think, uh, I think we've done a fairly good job of thinking through how we can make this accessible to folks, and it's a really fascinating topic, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think so. And uh, an interesting thing is like there's been such a long dialogue with the academics that study this, you know, even defining it. You, you know, you can't go to a Wikipedia and get a dictionary definition of what is organizational culture, but most people feel like they kind of know what that is intuitively, right? They do. At least they use the phrase organizational culture and they have some sort of meaning attached to that phrase that that's in their heads. It may not be exactly the same as what's in other people's heads. And, uh, you know, certainly it's been talked about in many different ways in the academic literature as well as in the, uh, the corporate uh, trade literature. I think some of the, the most uh, popular references to organizational cultures were back in the early 80s with the Peters and Waterman book, In Search of Excellence, which kind of brought to the forefront of executives' minds, this whole idea of corporate culture and why it matters and so forth. But the study of culture certainly has been going on for longer than that. Uh, that's, that's for sure. Right. So, Ben, wh- what, what are some good ways to start thinking about culture? So there are a couple different ways to think about it. And we, uh, you know, there are, there's obviously a, a fairly robust literature around this stuff. People have been writing about it and studying it. Uh, but I think one way we can think about it is through the, the lens of these kind of five different theories about organizational culture. And those five different ways of looking at organizational culture include uh, values, stories, frames, toolkits, and categories. 
And together, these, to me, you know, the way I explain organizational culture to executives or to my students, for example, is, you know, these come together to help us understand and how to, you know, how to make sense of the organization. Uh, it's kind of like the personality of an organization. It's those unwritten rules, those norms and values. They're those, it, it's that, uh, that mindset have about what they do when there aren't explicit rules about how to act. Uh, so, you know, all those things come in to, to make this thing we call organizational culture. But as I mentioned, there are these five different theorizations from, from this great review article that we'll post a link up to uh, that, that I think are helpful to kind of broaden our thinking about organizational culture and I think provoke some thought for our listeners. Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about values, I mean, I think, you know, as a way of viewing culture, you know, what we prefer uh, or desire, you know, I think that one's pretty, pretty, you know, obvious, right? Um, you know, what are values? So that tell me about stories. Why are why are stories an important way to view uh, culture, organizational culture? So, you know, it's, it's one of those ways in which the values of the organization get transmitted. And you think about it in any organization, there are there are stories that are told about, for example, you know, the the heroes and villains of the organization. Right. The, you know, it, it could be something as simple as, hey, you know, let me tell you about this one guy in the department who, you know, he doesn't work here anymore, but he did X, Y and Z and, you know, didn't work out so well for him. Right. Telling a little bit of story about some something that went wrong. On the converse, it could be something about, you know, someone who did something really well, and maybe it's something about the founder of the company. You know, there's great stories about how at Nike, they, you know, all the new employees, they come in, they hear the stories about uh, the founder of the company and so forth. Other organizations that have really strong cultures certainly have even deeper stories that get told and retold and probably even morph a little bit over time. I mean, I'm thinking of, for example, Disney, you know, right. There, there's really strong stories about how Walt Disney f- formed the company and and his vision for it, and these aren't just you know fun things that people tell each other. I mean they are, but there's something deeper going on there. And the thing that's deeper is that these stories are told to communicate what's important, what's not important, what type of behavior is acceptable or unacceptable within the organization. And so, you know, the stories are actually really important. If you want to understand what's, what the organization's culture is like, listen to the stories that are told uh, about, you know, what, what does success look like? What does failure look like? Uh, you know, who are some of the people who have been influential either for, for positive or negative outcomes within the organization? And those can really tell you a lot. And, you know, good leaders think about the stories that they tell. And yeah. they use those as a way to convey values and vision and so forth. Yeah, and and I think this is a interesting time to bring up the fact that there's the stories that management and HR and everybody tell, and then there's the stories, the real stories that everyone see, right? <laughs> so it's like That's you right. know we're a we're a company built on integrity, but here's how you lie on your timesheet. 
Um, <laughs> and and I, I think everybody, you know, they self-organize around that because we're social creatures. We, we observe that there's like a cultural performance element to things that people do. Like, for instance, Disney is so incredible. There's this massive vision about the man. But then they also had like laid off a bunch of IT workers some year back and had them train their cheaper replacements or get fired yeah. on the spot, right? So, you know, I bet I bet you some of those people had a little bit different view of the Disney way and the Disney culture and and all these things that that we see. I mean, obviously the IT group's different than the theme park group, but you know, the, there's this um what's the word? It's like the implicit narrative or what, what? Well, there's the so there's the espoused values yes, it's, of an organization that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. yeah. So there's you know those, those values that we say are really important. And then there's kind of the actual values, the things that uh, we really do. And if there's a big gap between those, then that's probably a problem uh, and and should be addressed within the organization. Probably some of the better organizations, there's less of a gap. But there's always going to be a, probably a little bit of a gap because, you know, the values of the organization are oftentimes aspirational. And furthermore, in any organization... I mean, once you get probably above, I would say, you know, small, like once you get above 20, 50, 100 people in an organization, there's kind of the the overarching culture of the organization. And then there's subcultures that start to develop maybe within departments, maybe within, you know, different locations and so forth. And so there can be some variance there. And that can be a really big struggle for large organizations, especially ones maybe that have grown through mergers and acquisitions, to think about how do we really you know, become one company in terms of our culture, in terms of how we want to get things done. And so uh, I think that's, a, that's an important note to, to think about. Yeah, and, and what's even achievable? Because as much as right. you might want to dictate something, people are going to kind of organize Okay, so um, let's go to the next. Let's talk about the next theorization, which is frames. Right. So we talked about values. We talked about stories. The next one is frames. So this this is about kind of how we communicate, how we bracket information. So, you know, culture is a way for people to think about what is important and what is not important. And so, for example, I'm thinking about uh, safety, you know, there are different norms that develop around safety and what constitutes a hazard and what does not. And when is it okay to report something that's going wrong or a potential hazard? When is it not okay? All of those types of things. Because, uh, you know, <laughs> you, um, you know, I always find it interesting when there's some sort of large industrial accident. I can remember specifically with the Deepwater Horizon oil rig, uh, when that incident happened in the Gulf of Mexico, I remember, uh, you know, right after it happened, I, I, I said to my wife, I said, hey, you know, I guarantee you that there's going to be, be people who say we knew about the problems, we tried to say something, or maybe we thought about saying something, et cetera. And, you know, given that there wasn't action taken based upon those perceptions of those few employees, that tells me that there's some sort of cultural frame that... Uh, you know, bracketed what they thought was appropriate to say and what was not appropriate to say, or what was being paid attention to and what was not. So that's a, another way to think about culture. And, uh, you know, there's a, a huge communication component here as well. Yeah, you know, I, I see this stuff with CIOs, 
Um, you know, I have to wonder about the Target CIO that, you know, after they had the hack, uh, the, the Target hack, or yeah, I think Home Depot had one as well. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you know, how, how dare they? How, how, you know, how could they have lost my data or, you know, not had their security up to par? But oftentimes in those conversations, they're saying, hey, listen, security's going to talk, or security's going to cost x and the the company just doesn't want to pay it and so they take that mm-hmm. risk right and then when it happens somebody lots of time gets hung out to dry well you, you didn't have the executive toolkit to help us understand how important <laughs> this was right but like that's a cultural frame of you know of like a risk management right you know that yeah. we, we put a price on how much we're willing to risk the reputational risk and and that'll frame how people organize to to meet those expectations. Right, right. So, you know, it reminds me of, you know, some stuff that we've encountered perhaps in the military, at least I've been a- around. You know, we have, uh, at least in the Navy, there are thousands upon thousands of procedures and operating standards and so forth. And, you know, there's, there's one in particular I'm thinking about. So I'm, I'm not a naval aviator, but um, we have a whole, there's a whole program. It's called the, it's called NATOPS, uh, Naval Air Training and Operating Procedure Standardization Program. And, um, wow, what a, yeah, so that's a mouthful, <laughs> right? But it, essentially, so there's a big book, there's a, there's a manual for this stuff. And, um, you know, what people oftentimes say is that that manual is, it's written in blood. And what they're referring to is the fact that, <laughs> Oftentimes, it took a, a some sort of mistake or an accident, or someone had to get hurt or die. For you know, there's a reason why there are different things written down in that manual. Right. Um, so you know, kind of to your point that sometimes we organizations, I think there's a, sometimes a bias, and I think oftentimes a bias to not uh, act upon risk in a way to you know prior to something happening. And you know, it's like th- that's always a trade off. And and you know we. <laughs> Theoretically, we could probably make airplanes that are virtually indestructible upon crashing, but the fuel costs of that heavy thing are so would be so incredible that it wouldn't be efficient anymore. And so, you know, we don't like to think about that, especially since I'm flying somewhere tomorrow. But uh, you know that there are trade offs that every organization plays between risk and efficiency and effectiveness that um, culture has a huge component in. Yeah, and so when we're talking about frames, we're actually talking about hey, this is the stuff that we pay attention to or that, that mindset that we bring mm-hmm. to what we look at, right? Exactly. You know, one example of, of that's related to this, but also to, you know, some of these other aspects of culture is, you know, the, the Challenger launch decision. When the, the Challenger... Oof, good uh, one. Yeah, yeah. When that, uh, when that space shuttle, when they launched it, um, so, you know, for our listeners who... It's funny. I have to. Uh, some some of my students now were not born when that happened, which makes me feel old. But um, th- so that you know, that was in the mid '80s. I believe it, like 1986, maybe in mid '80s. And uh, there was a lot of consternation around whether or not they should launch this space shuttle. And there was a lot of external pressure on NASA because they had delayed it a few times before. And then uh, they were deciding on that day, you know, sh- or, or very shortly before. Should we launch tomorrow? And the, the problem was that it was too cold, and there was it was out of tolerance for some of the O-rings that uh, kind of connect. I'm not a rocket scientist, but I think connect basically the 
uh, parts of the rockets to the the, the rest of the air the um, the shuttle. Yeah, don't hang us if we didn't get the exact nuance. I know something yeah, was yeah. messed up, and and <laughs> the launch was not successful. We're gonna have some rocket scientists email us and be like, "You got it all wrong. You um, guys are idiots." The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the the point being that there. So there's this fantastic book by a sociologist named Diane Vaughn, where it's called the Challenger Launch Decision, and mm. she, and what she does in that book is she outlines the cultural reasons why that happened, and she talks about this this approach towards risk where, you know, in that type of environment, you're always taking small risks and always calculating things. And, you know, she talks about how the the tendency was to then, you know, always kind of play on those margins of risk and and safety and push things further and further until it started to become acceptable, perhaps, for um, you know, the deviants to go a little bit too far. So I mean that's just an example again of these this power of culture as a frame through what's important and what's not important in the organization. Yeah, that's a really good example. Okay, Ben, so the the next uh, theorization is toolkits. Right. So this is um, kind of a a set of all these different things. It's the the stories, it's the frames, it's these categories, it's uh, all the rituals that we use to uh, create meaning ar- around what's going on in the organization. You know, it's it's about trying to think through, for example, you know, how we talk to each other. Wh- how do we recognize high performance? How do we, what do we do when a newcomer enters the organization? What do we do when someone leaves the organization? All of these different things that help us to understand, you know, again, what's important and what's not in the organization. So I think, you know, it's also a helpful way to think about, um, organizational culture for an executive, because these are different tools that, an or, that a, a leader can use to influence the, the behavior within the organization. Yeah, and I, I think a, it's important to note here that these theorizations are just different lenses of looking at the same thing. It, it, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's like, oh, well, this company has a toolkit culture or a stories culture. No, these are just different lenses, right, of looking at yep. the, same, the same item. Yeah, and that's why you know culture is one of these things that really defies a great definition because it is so complex and you can view it in all these different ways. And you can actually define it in different ways based upon how you're how you're thinking about organizational culture. And so, you know, the last one is thinking about culture as categories, which are, you know, these uh, ways that we determine, you know, what kind of thing is this? Is this is this a is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Um, is this something that's acceptable? Is this unacceptable? And it really is about you know w- again thinking about what types of behaviors, what types of um, actions in the organization perhaps are acceptable or unacceptable. And this is a way for people to make sense of what's going on in the organization. Yeah, a- ab- absolutely. Um, and you know, it's 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 more of a social element on the categories. You know, like how mm-hmm. do we feel about? This item, whereas like the toolkit might be, you know, going back to the toolkit one, like, you know, how, how are projects executed? You know, if you have right. a formalized kickoff meeting for every project, okay, well, your, pro- your project's probably not going to be successful if you don't have a formalized kickoff meeting, because that's what everybody expects. So that'd be like a tool, whereas like a category might be, um, well, we... I don't know. You know how when you check out anywhere, somebody says, hey, would you like our store credit card? 
Well, what, what, right. what if you were to sign, you know, part of your, your performance is how many credit card applications you got? Well, mm-hmm. um, okay, well, would it be okay for you to sign up everybody without telling them? You know, yeah. for a card, you know, like, okay, yeah, we're just taking down <laughs> this information, right? That in unscrupulous uh, cultures, um, you know, that may be acceptable. You know, we're going to grow right. our financial services arm by 20% hell or high water, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it could it could even happen in very subtle ways over time. And so I think you're referring perhaps to Wells Fargo over the past couple of years, where they had uh, some some rather notable incidents in which... They were cross-selling different, um, there's a big emphasis on cross-selling. You know, if you have a bank account, you know, get somebody to sign up for something else and so forth. And there were a lot of people who were signing people up for things without their knowledge, maybe doing it for five minutes and then closing it, signing up dead people for things, all kinds of stuff like that. And oftentimes, you know, this, this kind of goes into the world of ethics, but culture is a huge component here. Uh, Oftentimes, when there's an ethical issue within an organization like that, the tendency is to go towards, you know, the bad apple explanation. It's <laughs> this rogue employee did this thing, and you know what? We fired that employee, and now everything is okay. <laughs> just keep going about what you're doing. Nothing to see here. <laughs> right. I was right. just making but, sure those cookies were stacked in the cookie jar appropriately. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and that the problem, you know, so there are bad apples, uh, but oftentimes these things have an organizational context to them. And so many acts of corruption or unethical practices, they are acts of collective uh, corruption, right? Where there is there are cultural norms that have evolved in different ways to make things be acceptable or unacceptable. And really, you know, the, so the culpability goes far beyond just that rogue employee. And this is in no way to excuse a person from doing, you know, from what they've done. However, it helps us understand how the conditions can be such that, hey, like, you, you had some stuff where, you know, if you even if you put a pretty decent person in that situation, they probably would be uh, influenced, perhaps, to behave in that way. Right. And, and so when you look at culture as categories, it's kind of how people socially construct, you know, what's good or, or bad and, and those kinds of things, right? Yeah, and it really can inform all kinds of things. You know, I, uh, there's a, a great uh, researcher and um, professor, his name's David Hoffman, and he's at uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, in the business school there, and he does a lot of research on safety. And uh, he he came uh, when I was in graduate school. He came came down to Charlotte, where I went to graduate school, and he did a presentation for us. He was talking about safety and so forth, and he gave a really good example of just a subtle way in which norms around safety can be um, communicated, and it really informs kind of what's expected. And he was telling us a story about a time when he went and did a presentation on safety at a a large. I think it was a large oil company. He didn't mention the name of the company, but a large oil company, and he was he you know. Did a did this his talk and uh, did this presentation, and he thought it went went really well. And afterwards, you know, the uh, organizers of the event got some feedback from the participants and so forth. And it was by and large positive. They said, you know, really really smart person gave us some great info, et cetera, et cetera. But there were a lot of people who were kind of upset and said, 
you know what? This presenter or the other people who organized the event did not physically orient us to the space. They didn't tell us where the the, the exits were, right. what we were going to do. And the, you know, all these different things around. And so what that implies is there's this norm in that organization where, hey, whenever we're meeting in a place, we're going to have a, a, some sort of brief emergency action plan that's talked about right at the beginning. And I, I mean, I think that that's a really cool idea to, to actually do. Um, but it all, but to, to our point here, it's, it's just about the, um, the cultural norms, even just around how we talk about, you know, what could happen, what might happen. Uh, you know, there's all this really cool research on uh, counterfactual thinking, which is, you know, how we think about what might have happened, what could have happened, and culture can influence that. It's just, it's really interesting. Right. So, so, you know, one of the ideas is this idea of like, Okay, so we talk about organizational culture, but then there's also this idea about organizational climate, which, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people would probably lump them in the same same space, but it's, there's actually kind of an important difference here. So, Ben, organizational climate, what is it? Sure. So you're right that executives really don't care oftentimes about this, <laughs> about this distinction. <laughs> Between climate and culture. Culture, climate, and, I don't care. Just fix it, all yeah, right? <laughs> right. I mean, usually usually they either use the terms interchangeably or they just talk about culture. Uh, but what, you know, these are two different kind of complementary um, sets of ideas that developed in parallel in kind of uh, different yet somewhat overlapping academic disciplines. So organizational climate really kind of came more from psychology and has more of a quantitative type of history in terms of how it's measured, you know, measuring this through surveys and so forth. Culture actually comes more deeply from anthropology, studied more qualitatively through interviews and through participant observation where, hey, like, I can't actually know the culture of this organization until I'm a member of it for a couple years, you know, Um, talking more about these deep norms and values and assumptions. So climate... Uh, but climate is a very important thing, and climate is more of a a top down type of idea. It's this idea that you know our organizational climate has to do with those things that management expects, rewards, and supports. Right, so they expect certain things, they support certain types of behavior, they reward certain types of behavior, and it's much more of a kind of top down approach towards values and assumptions and all these different things, um, focused oftentimes on specific behaviors. So for example, climates are oftentimes referred to in terms of specific types of climates, a climate for safety, a climate for uh, customer service, a climate for diversity, a climate for ethics, these different types of climates that can exist within the organization. Whereas culture is much more about those deep shared assumptions and values and beliefs that help people understand, you know, what it, how we get work done around here, how we're supposed to think and feel and act, uh, how, it, you know, these are things that are communicated by the myths and stories that we tell and so forth. So that that is a little bit about the difference between the two. Right. And so, you know, like climate, you know, I always think about climate is those levers that management and executive have to pull a little bit, you know, it's kind of touches on tone at the top or, you know, it could be tone at the middle because right managers set the tone for their teams and that kind of stuff. So if you have a safety culture, 
that generally doesn't appear organically. Oh, look, all of a sudden our employees put together this awesome manual and are doing everything safely, right? There's generally right. some kind of shaping effort by somebody in the organization that has kind of some kind of structural power and, and that, that sets the climate. And then I always think about the culture as what emerges within or despite, you know, that type of climate that's just kind of how, how everything actually happens. And, you know, like mm-hmm. you said, there's aspirational elements that, that, you know, climate change, changing leadership may try to put in. Um, but the mm-hmm. actual organization culture is actually what happens, right? Would that be a good way of thinking about it, you think? I, I think it is. And I think that organizational climate is certainly something that is a little bit easier to grasp in terms of for an executive to think about, hey, what can I do? Um, they oftentimes are saying, well, right, what, what needs to be done? Well, you know, there are certain things that you can do to better communicate what types of behaviors are, you, you know, in this organization, you are going to, you know, expect support and reward versus culture, which, you know, takes years to develop. I mean, climate takes a while too, but uh, culture is, is much deeper. And I, I think um, taking the approach of, hey, I can influence this type of cl- climate. I really, you know, strategically, for for example, I we really need to focus on customer service and how we interact with customers. So I really want to develop this service type of cult- climate uh, that that can be a little bit more specific and a little easier to handle. Um, you know, versus, can you imagine going to an executive and saying, I need you to build some better myths and stories within your organization about <laughs> X, Y, or Z. <laughs> hey, here, here's a myth. We're going to make a billion dollars this year. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, and I, I'm going to get some advice from somebody else other than you, you wacko. Um, yeah. So, you know, but, but they are both very powerful influences within the organization. They go hand in hand. And uh, again, you know, culture is probably the, the phrase that is used more in, uh, in actual, you know, practitioner industry settings than right. climate. But, you know, and, there, and there's and, a and the way- fight, there's a fight in fight, you know, like how academics fight. I'm going to write a paper about you. Um, <laughs> but uh, like, you know, when it comes to climate and stuff, like you said, it comes out of psychology and it has quantitative roots. Almost every consulting company in the world generally is trying to peddle some kind of assessment. Oh, we're going to, mm-hmm. you know, we'll do this survey and, and you are a level five organizational climate or, you know, some something like that. Yeah, but yeah. There's mixed qualities. You know, I'm not going to say I totally disagree with those types of assessment around uh, climate. But then, you know, I love how the culture studies come out of anthropology, you know, interviews, deep, implicit understanding of what's going on, observational, you know, some even some stuff from history and those those kinds of items that that will touch mm-hmm. some of the literature there. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, this is a lot of times these are, you know, people will measure either culture or climate and they'll try they'll try to do it quantitatively via survey methodologies. And then sometimes it can be done done well. Uh, you know, like you said, that's not not that they're all being done poorly. Um, and it, it can provide some insight into you know what people are thinking about in terms of, hey, like, is this a safe place to work in terms of how we deal with hazards and so forth or other types of specific items? Uh, and so that, I mean, I think that can be very useful. Um, but it's, again, it's just a lens through which you can, you can see the organization and, you know, 
there are other lenses through which you can also see the organization, like you said, through uh, talking to people, looking around at the different artifacts of organizational culture. So we haven't really touched on that, but when we talk about artifacts, we're talking about those visible signs of organizational culture. And this can be, for example, how people interact with each other, how people are greeted, how people talk to people who are not of the same status. So, you know, how do they talk to authority, how they talk to subordinates, the the names that they use, uh, the titles that they use. It can also refer to even aspects of the physical design of the organization, you know, and things like, you know, who gets, uh, you know, who gets special parking spots <laughs> out yeah, in the parking right. lot. I mean, that, that is a cultural artifact. Uh, you know, is the carpet different in the executive part of the building or something, right? Yeah, um, only pic- full-time employees get to park yeah. near the building. The contractors right. who do the same jobs have to park two miles away. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I've seen that. You one. know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it has to do with um, you know whose pictures are on the wall. You know, sometimes you'll go into these these companies uh, that are maybe even named after the founder of the company, and there'll be you know these old kind of oil po- portraits of the the founders and their family and so forth on the walls, and those do tell us something about the uh, the organization's culture. I remember going and um, I was at the headquarters of Kroger. So Kroger's a a very large grocery store chain. They're headquartered in Cincinnati. And right. I remember I was um, I was in their boardroom at one point, and it's really interesting because they have different aspects of kind of the history of the organization, where they came from, uh, information about the, the founder and so forth, kind of around that area of the, the building, which is just, I think it is, it does communicate something. And, you know, I think people do like to have a sense of history and, and so forth. So anyway, those are artifacts of organizational culture. It could also have to do with those uh, ceremonies and rituals that we use, um, how, we, how we orient people to the organization. The, you know, what are the stories that we tell them, tell newcomers to help them understand how work gets done around here? So uh, if you want to, you know, we'll get into this a little bit more here in a few minutes, but, you know, if you want to start to change an organization's culture, looking at those artifacts can be a good place to start. Yeah, and and so like toxic cultures and mm. and th- those things emerging. So all of this stuff is like, okay, what is a culture? So you can have a positive culture and a lot of the study and literature kind of focused a little bit on human flourishing, which is a passion of ours, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, how does working at this company make individual feel? How do those people's feelings translate into productivity or, you know, those types of things. Um, But when like a toxic culture comes in about, you know, those same norms and values and everything constrain and make it difficult for those kinds of things to change. Right. And usually I think when we, when people are saying, oh, you know, the, the culture there is really toxic. Oftentimes I think they're referring to, the, the norms and patterns of behavior that have emerged around how people treat each other. So, you know, people are hostile to each other. There's harassment, maybe some unethical behavior. And, you know, that's, that's where, um, you know, <laughs> I hate to say it, but it's like that, that comes down to leadership and it, you become what you tolerate in the organization. And right. if that's the kind of stuff that you're tolerating, then you do start to create a toxic culture, so to speak. And, you take a good person, and here's what's toxic about it, right? The, to- the culture is toxic. You take a good person, a non-toxic person, and you stick them in there, uh, you know, 
there's a good chance that they're going to be influenced by the culture, not the other way around, because this kid can be very powerful, unless they, for, for whatever reason, can can resist, uh, you know, those types of behaviors and patterns and so forth. Um, Which you might so. not be able to and keep your job, right? And, right, and that exactly. Can, that's some of the crucible for that. And then, so, okay, so that's the idea of a toxic culture. Mm-hmm. But then let's talk about, like a strong culture and what are strong cultures. And I I think it's important to note that you can have a strong toxic culture or a strong positive culture. So when we say this company or organization has a strong culture, what does that mean? Right. So it does not, as you just mentioned, it does not mean anything about the positive or negative value of that culture. It's talking about the, the level of shared agreement around, you know, what's important and so forth. So, you know, when you have, if you did not have a strong culture, then there's, you know, there's, there's, there probably is a culture, but it's, it's a little bit more of individual action is, you know, people can kind of do their own thing a little bit more. There aren't big norms around what's acceptable and what's not. And, you know, one decent example, I think of a strong culture is, is the military and both of you and I have some experience in the military and, you know, you think about it, there, there is a distinct uh, barrier to entry into the military. Right. You go through some really interesting... I mean, if you kind of look at them closely, like the, the, the rituals and ceremonies that we use to uh, bring newcomers into the military are fairly interesting. You got to um, shave that hair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, uh, yeah. So, you know, if, uh, you got to get a haircut if, if you are male, but, uh, you know, all those different types of things that they go through in terms of training, in terms of, you know, this is how we talk to each other, you know, why we salute, right, which is, is, is interesting, how we treat authority, different titles, you know, and uniforms, all that kind of stuff is very prevalent in the military, right? And, in, and it also, you could argue maybe in some paramilitary organizations or, or organizations like the um, fire service and the police and so forth, they also have fairly strong cultures around these things. It's very, there's a big distinction between insiders and outsiders for these organizations. Yeah, right, um, absolutely. Right. And, you know, the... Um, so there's also this other idea of, you know, a, a total institution, you know, where, where everything is kind of controlled by the culture of the organization and so forth. And uh, I, I think a, a Navy ship at sea is actually a fairly good example of that. You know, you can't leave. <laughs> and <laughs> You are a floating uh, you, island, right? You, you are. I mean, your office building, so to speak, is, is where you also sleep and eat and shower and, you know, you... Um, you know, unless you're the one of the the most senior people on the ship, you're sharing a room with with one or more, or you know, maybe dozens of other people, depending on your your rank and so forth. Uh, and so there there's a really there can be a very strong uh, cultural component to how everyone behaves, and that can be a very good thing because we want to know what's expected. I don't want to have to, you know, it can also really help with trust because I can, I can have a more of a sense of reliability about how a person might behave in a situation, given that they've gone through these similar experiences and so forth. Um, like you said, though, you, know, you can also have cultures that are um, maybe, you know, strong in a very negative way where maybe there certain types of behavior are um, tolerated or maybe even uh, promoted within the organization that are not healthy. Things around, you know, 
harassing people or bullying or uh, those types of, of things, which certainly can be counterproductive. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, the thing when we as humans go through life, we're not making every decision that we have. Some of them are on autopilot, like, oh, time to blink my eyes or time to take a breath. Um, manners are a good example. You know, if, if people have been socialized with what, say, Western manners are, we know how to hold our fork or to put our napkin on our lap while we're dining. That It lets us relax and the other cognitive functions come to the fore. And so, mm-hmm. like, when you have a culture and there's norms, you know, if you're a kid in basic training, well, you don't know what the norms are. Well, they kind of beat them into you over the course of a few months. And then you come out and you feel relaxed. You know how to put on your uniform appropriately, um, how to conduct your life as a soldier. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that helps you feel comfortable in navigating those more higher level functions that you might, might execute. Exactly. And, you know, these things can take a while to learn as a newcomer. I'm just thinking, I was having flashbacks to, you know, early on in my Navy career when, you know, there are, for example, certain ways that you board and disembark a ship. So, you know, you you walk up the brow, which is that little bridge that goes from the pier over to the ship. Halfway up, you stop and you turn towards the uh, the stern of the ship, which is the, the back part of the ship. And you, if you're in uniform, you salute the, um, the, the flag, uh, which is at the, at the rear of the ship, at the stern. Uh, then you um, walk to the, re- you know, the rest of the way up and you address the person at the front uh, you know, who's there. You say, you know, re- request permission to come aboard and so forth. You know, for, for officers, we, uh, we eat in a separate place. <laughs> it's called the wardroom. So you know, you, and when you walk in, you have to ask permission to join. You ask the most senior person there, uh, you know, may I join you, sir, ma'am, and so forth. And at first, it can be really kind of... <laughs> awkward and you're kind of scared and so forth. But then, like you said, once you kind of get into that, you start to, um, you get very, it becomes second nature to you. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of go on autopilot. Right. And when people join a new organization, they're still in that acculturation mode and, Mm -hmm. and they're more on alert because they don't know all the norms. They don't want to transgress. But then after a while that, you know, they're on autopilot and, and stuff. Well, well, and this is where that whole onboarding and mentoring piece can be really important for folks, right? right? The, to help the them quicker, understand the culture. The quicker you get them acculturated, um, the the better and more relaxed they're going to be. So that's right. So Ben, let's talk about the ASA model, and let's try not yeah. to get too dark and pessimistic here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, once upon a time, back in 1985. Um, I, so I was not there at this time. I was I was rather young at that time. But um, in 1985, a rather well-known uh, scholar named Ben Schneider, he gave an address. Uh, he was the president of the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology at the time, and he gave a, his presidential address. That then turned into a paper that was published in 1987 in Personnel Psychology. And the, the name of the paper is, well, the title is, The People Make the Place. And in that paper, he discusses this idea of the attraction, selection, and attrition model, uh, which has a lot to do with culture. And the idea here is that organizations, through their recruitment practices, through their reputation, through other types of communication to outsiders, attract a certain type of employee. You know, you think about, we'll go back to the military, you know, because of the way we, we structure our recruiting ads and so forth, we are 
you know, the, the military is pretty deliberate in only wanting a certain type of person to even apply. That helps with recruiting efforts, like having that strong employer brand. You don't want someone who, you know, maybe really wants to be in full control of their career, but, you know, and then you don't want somebody who really wants to, uh, you know, avoid public service and those types of things, right? You want someone who kind of wants a little bit of adventure. They want to learn new things. They're, you know, they're willing to do something, do, do potentially uh, unpleasant stuff and whatnot. So anyway, a certain types of uh, person, certain types of people are attracted to join the organization. Certain types of people are actually selected. That's the S part. So attraction, selection through different processes and so forth. And then if there's a mismatch there, then there's attrition, so attraction, selection, and attrition. Attrition being people leaving the organization, either voluntarily or involuntarily. And the reason that you know you, you kind of jokingly said, don't get too dark here, is that what this suggests is, and it helps us explain why over time, some organizations, if they're not careful, will become more and more homogenous over time. Because we are attracting a certain type of person, we're selecting certain types of people, who oftentimes are kind of like us, uh, if there's not a fit, especially if there's a really strong culture, then those people leave. And that can have some fairly dour um, implications for things like diversity and creativity and things like that. Yeah, the gosh, it's just so strong. So put yourself in a manager's position. What if as HR, I gave you the mandate, you can hire anybody you want for the job. There's two criteria. One, can they actually do the technical stuff? And then the mm -hmm. second part is you must not like them at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, just to yeah, kind yeah. of put that in focus of what we're talking about, it's like, oh, well, yeah, you know. But if, if you know, if it's a good old boys club, you know, mm -hmm. if you're a manager and you hire somebody that doesn't quite fit in the good old boys club, th this idea of even even if you'd like to change the culture yourself, that that attraction selection and attrition model plays such a powerful vortex to what actually gets executed. It does. It does. And so I think, you know, a takeaway potentially for leadership and for executives is you want to pay attention to these types of things. You know, culture really can matter. It really can influence, you know, what the, what types of people your organization uh, attract, select and retain over time. And so, uh, you know, if you're not careful, you might just end up being an organization that has a bunch of clones. And we know that in times of turbulence, when you need to have complex decision making uh, that's happening on a regular basis, having a bunch of clones doesn't really do anything because then everybody kind of already has the same information. It's not not really going to help um, provide unique uh, and useful types of solutions in those situations. Yeah, um, here's another example. So let's talk about like when women first got brought into the combat arms within the army. Mm -hmm. um, it was probably challenging, I imagine, for the first couple, you know, to just be the only ones there, and well, yeah, and and to stay the you know daggone stay the course for a 20 year career, so that the cultural norms and the people that come behind, you know, there's people that are the first ones to do something, um, you know them not quitting and 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 stay in the course is, is part of that you know attrition kind of piece there right right um so one of the things about culture as leaders you know you can feel like oh my gosh it's just kind of morphed into this monster on its own and it, it is what it is but actually leaders embed 
culture, right? And mm-hmm. and they have some very specific mechanisms. So if you're a leader, you're actually not a victim. And matter of fact, the higher up the organization you go, the less of a victim of circumstance and culture you are. Right, right. And there's some great stuff from the legendary Edgar Schein, who is the, uh, uh, you know, he's a, I think he's like 91 at this point, but he has for a long, long time researched and consulted on things related to organizational culture and organizational development. And, you know, he, he discusses these primary embedding mechanisms and these secondary embedding mechanisms that leaders can use to influence culture, which I think are really helpful. Uh, so, for example, we'll start with some of those primary embedding mechanisms. And like you said, you're not the victim here, especially if you're higher up in the organization. And, you know, one of the primary embedding mechanisms for organizational culture that leaders can use is, you know, culture gets shaped by what leaders pay attention to, what they measure, and what they control on a regular basis. So, you know, when you as a, a, a leader are thinking about things that you're going to pick apart and highlight in a meeting, when you're picking, when you're thinking about what types of metrics you want to see, what types of things you're going to control, that is influencing culture. Right. Yeah. So uh, a second one is how leaders react to critical incidents or organizational crises. So when something out of the ordinary happens, when something bad happens, uh, or it could be even something that's really great happens, how they react tells the rest of the organization what they care about. So that's another way you can embed it. Um, How leaders even allocate their resources, how they go about that process, how they role model, how they teach, how they coach. uh, All of that can certainly be a way to embed organizational culture. And then, you know, thinking about how they reward people, how they... uh, confer status on others, and then finally, how they even recruit, select, and promote people within the organization, because uh, that can really tell people, you know, I can say that X, Y, and Z are really important around here, but if I promote somebody who doesn't have those characteristics, then what I'm really saying is, you know, <laughs> there's something else that's more important. And right, so, I play favorites, uh, or, you know, whatever Yeah, 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 well, yeah, so... I think it's really important to remember that your actions communicate a lot. And then, you know, what what do you what what does it take to get fired around here? Uh, that's a very um, important thing for cultural value um, communication. Right. So the lead, the leaders really embed the culture. And one of the things that you'll see as far as like evaluating executives and when we do some coaching is, you know, newer executives, at least I tend to observe, are kind of well, they're new to the culture of leadership. Oh shoot! Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm. I'm not even a manager now. I'm actually a director. I'm an. I'm an executive. I have a large remit within the organization. So they're looking around for cues on how to behave. But it's right. like, hey, you, you're the one that's actually setting that tone, right? And so mm-hmm. as you see an executive start to develop, they're less looking around for cue signals from the environment around them. They're able to, they have complete comfortability in their area of uh, control and what they're supposed Mm -hmm. to be doing, that they're able to actually change their posture and what they're doing to begin to shape the culture, which in turn helps them drive the results that'll help them get promoted to the next level. As well said, and you know, one way that I talk about this with uh, MBA students, as I say, look, you know, there are a lot of things that you probably either like or don't like in your organization. 
And you probably think about these things in terms of they are doing these things. They did this and so forth. And I say, you know, guess what? If you're not there already, you probably will be soon. You will become them. You are the they (laughs) in the organization. And so you have to make that shift to, you know, not being the victim and to, you know, using some of these different things we're talking about in terms of embedding organizational culture to create the organizational culture that you want and need. And so some of these secondary embedding mechanisms, so we talked about those primary ones, some secondary ones are looking at your organizational design and structure, who reports to whom, that can be really important. What are the systems and procedures you use in the organization? Uh, What are some of the rites or rituals that are used to, for example, uh, recognize success, to recognize newcomers, to uh, all those types of things, to recognize promotions and so forth. Even the design of the physical space, uh, that can have a big impact on on how people think about their their work. Um, the stories that you tell, we talked about stories at the beginning, uh, the stories about important events and people and creating stories that uh, you know, help to communicate values. So, you know, we've worked with executives before, uh, you and I, Chris, where, you know, the executive perhaps had a, a good story about somebody, the employee of the month. And what we've always emphasized to that executive is, hey, use this as an opportunity to talk about not just like, hey, this person did a great job. Talk about what they did and how it relates to the values that you want in this organization. Because if you can tell that story in a compelling way, people remember stories. So, you know, there's there good, good sides and bad, bad sides to that, right? We, we love narratives. So use them wisely. Use them in a way that helps to communicate the values that you really want in the organization, uh, and uh, and that, that can be really powerful. And then, of course, there are formal statements, you know, about what we care about as the organization, our philosophy, uh, and so forth. Those can be no, other ways in which you can embed culture within the organization as a leader. Right, and I like to see the difference. So when we talk about primary embedding mechanisms, they're specifically what you do in your day-to-day. And those secondary mm-hmm. embedding mechanisms are more structural in nature, kind of how you're shaping the organization through like policy programs, you know, those ritualistic communication, the whole organization. But if there is a difference between what you're doing and those secondary mechanisms, like how you design the structure and the stories you tell, or, you know, oh, this is our creed. And, you know, during your onboarding, you're going to learn about our creed. Um, I know that the army came up with some values and stuff. And then depending on what the command climate is in your specific command, you know, you can either feel kind of snarky about those values, like, yeah, mm-hmm. right. Or you can feel like in, impassioned by those values and, and inspired. Um, so what you do as a leader in your individual actions, what you pay attention to, measure and control, how you promote, as much as possible needs to align with those secondary mechanisms of like organizational design and formal statements and and those kinds of issues. If you don't, mm-hmm. a, the culture is going to get out of your control. And when you go to cha- right. cha- uh, shape or change things, you're going to wonder why there are no levers for you to pull. Exactly. Exactly. And so we talked, uh, I think, a good amount about what, you know, what organizational culture is, how it relates to this idea of climate, and some different related aspects in terms of uh, how leaders are involved in all of that. So maybe we'll move on now and talk a little bit about why 
organizational culture matters briefly. Yeah. What who, do you think? Who gives a rip about yeah. why does this matter, Ben? 30 minutes yes. in, now you're going to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it matters for a variety of reasons. And I think most people, uh, most executives intuitively understand that it matters. But one reason is that these norms really can endure. There's some cool research, you know, in the world of entrepreneurship, looking at uh, founders. Oh, yeah. And, you know, so some of the some of the values and stuff that the the wheels that they set in motion, either intentionally or unintentionally, they can endure for quite a while and they can be a little bit difficult to change. Um, so, you know, the, what you care about as a, as a leader, what types of things you notice, what types of things you tolerate are really important for the long-term health of your organization. And these really matter for the execution of your strategy, you know, so your culture isn't strategy itself, but your culture is very important in the execution of it. And so you need to have a culture that aligns with those critical tasks that you need to accomplish in order to execute your strategy. So those are two really important reasons. Right. You can have the best strategy in the world uh, designed mm-hmm. by the greatest minds. It's really winning. But culture kind of drives the boat and getting your people to move in a direction and do something. So, you know, your, your strategy may say we are going to, you know, do X, Y, Z, you know, and these are the values or how we're going to decide. But when it actually comes to executing that strategy and getting to done on those critical tasks that are going to define it, well, the culture defends how ni- defines how nimble and aligned your whole organization will be in those execution pieces. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And organizational culture is also really important for going back to that attraction, selection, and attrition model in terms of how we attract, select, and retain the very best people in the organization. So being intentional about that. It's also very important for avoiding toxicity and and realizing that, hey, when you tolerate something in your organization, you are communicating uh, that something is okay and that, uh, that that's something that's tolerated. That's an that can really start to contribute to a, a culture that is not productive and, and really causes the, the best people to leave. Right. Yeah, have fun executing your strategy when all the top talent's out the door. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and, and the thing is, is, you know, your top talent, they have options. They, they, they're the ones who probably, you know, could get jobs elsewhere. So if the culture is toxic, then, you know, they're, they're probably going to... Uh, look for, for work elsewhere and they'll find it. Right. And then you're going to be left with, you know, more of the, a higher percentage of toxic types of behaviors. Right. And, and this is, I mean, what our whole podcast and really what we've dedicated our life to is human flourishing, um, at work and everywhere, really. Mm -hmm. You can't have human flourishing with a garbage culture. You, it, you just can't. Mm hmm. Right. And when you are in a culture that is, uh, you know, for whatever reason, toxic, and that, that, that can mean a lot of different things, of course, uh, but it can really take a, a toll on your own well-being, your ability to perform well, uh, and, and certainly your ability to, to flourish. And, you know, so what uh, it was interesting, I was on Twitter the other day, and I hope I'm not misattributing this, but there's this uh, there's a professor named Bob Sutton at, at Stanford, and I think it was him. Um, I think he was he maybe was talking he may have been referencing Jeffrey uh, Pfeffer, but anyway, yeah, we'll have to put this in how, the show notes. Yeah, we'll look it up. But what he 
he he mentioned that you know it's really important to uh, you know what he tells people who are looking for jobs. He says, hey, like when you're interviewing somewhere, look around at all the people who might be your future coworkers, because chances are, if you get hired and you work there, you're going to become like them. So, you know, because of the strong nature of of cultures, right? Um, And so if you don't like kind of that prospect, uh, thinking that you're going to go in and change everything is probably uh, less realistic than realizing that a culture can be very strong. So finding an organizational culture in which you can flourish is very important for you personally and professionally. Absolutely. So so let's move on. Let's move over to culture change or how organization uh, can change their culture. There's, you know, a few few ways that we look look at this. And then I think it's important to to uh, talk about how that like change management versus culture change. How, what what is that and what does it mean? So so let, let's just talk about some of the top reasons um, that how culture changes within organizations. OK, so first of all, it, it can either change kind of in a small um you know, incremental way over time, or it can be dramatic and intentional. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, there's some really great research looking at how organizations, for example, have had very small changes that over time have turned into, you know, kind of a cumulative sum of all these small changes have ended up being really dramatic changes. And those are more kind of like bottom-up type changes that happen uh, due to maybe a change of focus in the organization, or maybe people found kind of an opportunity Right. And, and these things, these things happen around, I mean, some of this touches like the complexity science. Um, and the less you're using those primary and secondary embedding features, you know, those things can, those small changes add up over time. You know, your, your culture hasn't been monitored. And, you know, I love the term climate because, you know, well, what kind of plants do you want to grow within your organization? Uh, if you're creating a climate where weeds and stuff grow, well, then those small changes will add up and all of a sudden you just have a giant mess. Nothing positive can can come through there. Um, exactly. But that being said, if you're a mid-level or low-level manager and you are doing what you can at your level, those small impactful things that can change the world around you, those will add up over time. And you may not know exactly what will develop after that, but you're definitely trending in the right direction. Right. And so there, you know, the other kind of approach towards culture change is more dramatic and more intentional. And I think the keys here might be for leaders to go back and look at some of those things that we talked about in terms of how leaders embed their culture. Uh, And those can be really powerful ways for you as a leader to start to change the, uh, the cultural fabric of that of your organization. Uh, as I mentioned kind of earlier on in this episode, we talked about, you know, look at the different artifacts and of, of organizational culture. How, what is, what does communication look like in, in that organization? How do people interact? Uh, what are some of the kind of the ceremonies and rituals that are used, so to speak? Uh, you know, what are the, what's the physical layout of the organization? What are the, the, um, the formal kind of written philosophies or strategies or creeds, so to speak, of the organization. And those, if you can change those artifacts, then that can start to, over time, and it's, especially if you back it up with action, which really needs to happen, you can start to change how people see the organization, how they behave within the organization, and, and really have more of a uh, long-term impact on the culture. 
Uh, in organizations that are going through a cultural change, you know, generally there's something structural in how they're operating as a business or they're, you know, recovered from a bankruptcy or something like that. You generally see the talking head at the top do some kind of dramatic communication. Everything's mm -hmm. really laid out. They start, you know, firing people that don't align with their values. They talk about, you know, maybe why that person is no longer with them or, you know, those kinds of things start going out. So, you know, there's that small changes that add up over time. And then there's dramatic, you know, communicated and followed up uh, intentional ways of changing culture. Right. And what I would suggest to any leader or executive who's in the situation of trying to change your culture is this is not going to happen overnight. This is going to be a persistent, you know, <laughs> dogfight on your end that you are going to have to, you know, be, be very perseverant in modeling the behavior that you want to see, in communicating what's important and what's not in the organization, because just a, a speech at the company get-together or a you know an all hands email is not going to change the organization's culture in and of itself. It has to be backed up with consistent action over time, with visible types of of changes that that people notice. Right. So, you know, there, there's this idea from uh, maritime navigation. <laughs> it's actually a, a rule in the Coast Guard's rules for how how ships should operate out at sea. It says that, you know, if there's two ships that are coming towards each other, uh, don't just make a small course change to, you know, to avoid each other. Make something that's noticeable to the other other ship so that they can realize that, hey, they're, they're turning a little bit to the right, so we're going to be okay, and we can adjust our course accordingly and not hit each other. You know, I, I think that's, that's, a, that's an interesting metaphor for how we can change kind of the direction of an organization. Sometimes it takes a, a pivot that is fairly noticeable and that people are can see. It's like, hey, we just fired so-and-so or we just promoted so-and-so and here's why we did that. Or we are going to you know, start this new line of business or end this one uh, area of our organization's efforts and, and here's why. Uh, that can be a really powerful signal to everyone because it's action. It, it's putting your, your actions uh, and aligning, you know, aligning those actions with your words. Right. And, and that goes back to this stuff on like how leaders embed culture, those primary and secondary mm -hmm. things we talked about um, just moments before. And then, you know, the final one is like the same thing around the attrition and selection stuff, like who you hire, how you onboard. Uh, performance management is huge. You know, I think, I mean, we always get a chuckle. We're like, hey, do, does your performance management or your annual review process stuff, does it stink? And we always get chuckles, you know. <laughs> if, if you're not dialed in on how you manage performance within your organization, your culture is just going to spin out of control uh, to right. varying degrees. And then who you promote, which, you know, tells people what's important actually, you know, are those primary and secondary factors aligned, i.e. how your organization mm -hmm. functions at structurally versus how you lead as a, as a manager. Um, so who you promote is going to tell people, you know, what's really important there and if those items are aligned. And then the last thing is how you celebrate and recognize success. So it's not, you know, you can't just keep promoting people to do cultural signals, but you can celebrate and recognize success and communicate that so you know what, you know, so people in the organization know what right looks like in that place. Yes, yes, 
Definitely. Okay, so today, to wrap up, we've talked about organizational culture. We've talked about what it is and how to change it. Uh, We've gone through some definitions about organizational culture, uh, providing some different ways to look at it. We've talked about why it matters, and you know, it's, it really is a huge part of how the organization actually operates and is certainly key to human flourishing. And then finally, we've, we've talked about how organizational culture changes, and uh, a lot of this needs to come from, from leaders. Uh, it also needs to come through deliberate actions in terms of how you show the organization what's important and what really matters. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.